Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is John Seeger, and he's got a brand new book out. It's a compilation of essays and articles um, from a variety of different perspectives. We'll talk about who contributed to the book in a moment. But the book is called The Good Crisis, How Population Stabilization Can Foster a Healthy U.S. Economy. Now, John is the president and CEO of Population Connection, uh, the nation's largest grassroots population organization. And just as a reminder, you know, we've talked talked about population issues on Go Green Radio many times in the context of what it means to the environment and what it means for the standard of living for human beings that, you know, are, are part of this population uh, that is burgeoning throughout the world. Now, I am really excited to have John on the show. And, and John, welcome to Go Green Radio and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, you know, as I mentioned, the book is a compilation of a variety of perspectives from different authors. I'd love for you to tell us about the construct of the book. Talk to our listeners about how it's organized and who contributed to the book. Great. Well, for some years now, several decades really, there's been this sort of steady drumbeat of concern about how, at least in the eyes of some people, not us, that we're running out of people. Uh, Personally, I haven't noticed a big people shortage myself, but, but there are people who are concerned that falling birth rates are going to put us into some kind of a difficult or terrible fix. Uh, the, the name for this was, came up with a, a fellow named Ben Wattenberg, came up with a, a catchy phrase, I don't agree with it, but it's catchy, the birth dearth. This idea that somehow our economy and our way of life and our culture are all going to fall apart because we're, we're just not having as many kids as we used to. And for years and years now, we kept saying somebody needs to do a book to counter this, and we kept hoping somebody else would do it, and nobody <laughs> did, so we did. And uh, we came up with the title, The Good Crisis, because the people on the other side of this debate, if you will, uh, see these falling birth rates as a crisis, and with sort of a play on words, we decided if it's a crisis, it's the first good one we've ever had in about mm-hmm. time. And, and so we brought together a, a number of leading scholars and, and also told, I hope, some interesting stories within the book about how population stabilization and maybe even decline down the road could actually foster a healthy economy here in the United States. Well, and you know, since this is Go Green Radio, we have to address the environmental component of the population debate. Talk to us about the environmental benefits we might realize if population stabilizes or, as you mentioned, even declines over time. Well, we're running a pretty complicated science experiment, we humans, on this earth. And there are a nearly infinite number of variables with seven plus billion people, and that doesn't count the trillions of other critters on this planet. So questions like this tend to be very complex. But when you get right down to it, uh, we humans as a species, for about the last 200 years, not really before that, but for the last 200 years in in an increasing fashion, are making a, a major and, in my view, harmful impact, not altogether harmful, but significantly harmful impact on the planet in terms of 
species extinction, in terms of uh, destroying habitat, in terms of polluting the air, polluting the water, and now, as we've come to learn in, in recent years, actually changing the climate of the planet. And uh, if you look into it, you'll discover it's not raccoons or bears or that possum that visited my back door the other night who are doing this. It's us. And so since we're doing it and we're having this impact, uh, it seems reasonable to look at what is driving it. And one of the drivers, not the only one, but one of them is rapid population growth. Well, the more people, the more consumption. It makes perfect sense. It's more complicated than that, of course. Uh, you know, we've had guests on the show before who've talked about it kind of depends on where you're born in terms of, you know, what the average consumption of various countries are and why even here in the United States where we're not really seeing a population explosion, so to speak, uh, based on the per capita consumption, you know, each child does have quite an impact. Now, in the introduction of the book, John, you make the case that population stabilization and perhaps decline is no reason for alarm. And, you know, we have a lot of students who listen to the show, uh, high school, college students, and they may not have heard the flip side of that argument. So talk to us about the people who might disagree with your assertion and why. Who are they and what is their... What is their reason for alarm when they look at population stabilization? You hear a couple of different arguments advanced, uh, some by columnists that you can find in publications like the New York Times, like Ross Duvat, uh, authors like Ben Wattenberg, uh, some economists or, or people who talk about the economy anyway. Uh, they advance several different uh, perspectives. One is that historically... Economic growth, and we can debate the relative merits of that, but economic growth and population growth have gone hand in hand. Uh, And if you want to see continued prosperity, you're not going to have it without economic growth, and you're not going to have it without population growth. No, I I don't agree, but that's their point of view. Uh, The next argument they make is, uh, or some of them make, is, for lack of a better word, a cultural argument. They think that First of all, they posit the notion that that we're just not going to have any more children, which seems improbable. Uh, But they somehow think that there was this golden past when families were stronger and more robust. They were certainly larger. And that somehow the loss of that and the trend toward people who are child-free or just have one child or two is somehow uh, destroying a kind of family structure that has been very important to our culture. Again, I don't really agree, but they're entitled to their points of view. Well, there are many economists who link increasing population, whether that comes from birth rates or immigration, with an increase in gross domestic product, GDP. And it's a widely shared goal across the world to increase, you know, everybody wants their country's GDP to increase. If population stabilizes or declines, should we worry about decreased GDP? Um, You know, even the fact that we need to mitigate and adapt to climate change we know will be costly. So, you know, there is an environmental component associated with the economic health of a nation. Well, I would suggest if if people want to do a little interesting reading sometime, they might go back and read a speech delivered by uh, the late Senator Robert F. Kennedy in the spring of 1968 at the University of Kansas, where he said more eloquently than I can that the GDP 
includes people in prisons. The GDP does not include happiness. It doesn't include the laughter of children. It doesn't include the satisfaction that comes from spending a quiet evening, maybe sitting on your back porch. So not everything that can be counted and quantified is worthwhile, and not everything that can't be isn't. That said, uh, we all tend to need a certain amount of wherewithal to get uh, through our days. And this is where the issue of gross domestic product comes in. Uh, I don't know anybody who feels more or less well-off when the gross domestic product goes up or down. It really depends on their own livelihood and their own welfare and their own income, to certainly to a large extent. And so if you have more people, maybe you're going to have more of a gross domestic product, but that doesn't necessarily mean either that individual people are going to be better off, and it certainly doesn't necessarily mean that people or the planet we live on are going to be better off in the ways that are harder to count and measure. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a a definitely valid point of view. And sometimes I think, you know, middle-class Americans look at, you know, wealthy folks like a Kennedy who can say things like that, and, and they wonder, do you really understand how, you know, gross domestic product impacts the services and goods that we need, you know, provided in our communities, jobs, but also infrastructure and those types of things. And it causes people a little bit of angst. Um, And maybe that's justified and maybe it's not. But when GDP slips, um, you know, people do associate that with job opportunities and wage uh, inflation or deflation. And I know, you know, we're here in the middle of a crazy presidential election cycle this year, and the viability of America's Social Security program comes up in every election cycle. Talk to us about how the pay-as-you-go model is impacted by population trends and some of the recommendations that your book's contributors uh, make to maintain a viable Social Security program, because that's important to a lot of people. It sure is, and uh, most of us... uh at one time or another, are going to be thinking pretty hard about Social Security and how it's going to, uh, how it's going to impact uh, our, our, our futures or present once you get to a certain age. People raise concerns that Social Security is going to, there isn't going to be any money in Social Security. Well, that's not true. What is true, however, is that uh, some years down the road, not that many years, and it's hard to predict exactly because it depends on the course of the economy, Social Security will exhaust the surplus it has accumulated, and it will no longer take in as much money as it needs to pay out at current benefit rates. And people raise all sorts of alarms. We need to slash Social Security benefits we need to, uh, you know, start, everybody needs to run out and start having more children. Of course, it doesn't occur to them that sooner or later, children tend to grow up and grow old, and how, how are you going to deal with that? But here's really what's underneath all of this. Social Security taxes paid on all the income an individual earns up to $118,500. So here's what plays out. The man, and it is usually a man who sits in the corner office, doesn't pay Social Security tax on his entire income. But the woman, and more commonly it's still a woman, who cleans that office does. It's fascinating that the people who talk the most about some sort of flat tax fall shockingly silent when it comes to the idea of everybody paying the same rate on Social Security. 
on their earned income. If we all did that, and this wouldn't change taxes one iota for anybody making under $118,500, that, that gap in Social Security would just disappear. Talk about an easy solution to a problem. Uh, and then we can move on to the next problem. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's really a, a, a false problem, and we can dispense with it pretty easily. Very interesting. I think, you know, that, that gives me pause, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well, to consider uh, that solution and uh, perhaps pass that solution along to our, uh, our elected officials. Very interesting. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with John, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in with us today. Just a quick reminder, you know, Go Green Radio is a part of another organization. We're part of the Go Green Initiative, uh, the environmental education program that I founded back in 2002. We are helping schools in all 50 states and in 73 countries around the world lower their environmental footprint through a variety of programs that are all free to schools everywhere. And so if you would like to help us out, if you would like to help us continue to bring those programs to schools, you can check out our website at www 
gogreeninitiative.org and click on donate. We would appreciate that very much. And we will send you a great big thank you and a little packet um, that you can, uh, a little poster you can put up in your office space to say you support the Go Green Initiative. So thank you for your consideration there. Our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is John Seeger. And he has a brand new book out called The Good Crisis, How Population Stabilization Can Foster a Healthy U.S. Economy. Now, John, we've talked about population issues many times on Go Green Radio over the past eight years. And a common theme is that the increased consumption that accompanies population growth poses a serious threat to the environment. The idea is that if we have more children, they'll consume more and more, and that will cause an increase in societal waste and greenhouse gas emissions. But there was a line in the chapter of your book that's entitled Economic Consequences of Population Aging in the United States. And that chapter makes an interesting point. The authors write, Compared to a 20-year-old, an 80-year-old consumed twice as much in 2007 as in 1960. So does this statistic undermine the environmental argument for lowering the birth rate in America? Talk to us about that, John. Well, I think the good place to start is to look at how, briefly, how and why birth rates declined here in the United States. Uh, And the great decline occurred during the 1960s and 1970s. When John F. Kennedy was inaugurated president, and I'll I'll try to keep this little historical piece brief. No, don't, because this is good. (laughs) The average woman had 3.4 children in the United States. By the time Jimmy Carter was sworn in as president 16 years later, that figure had dropped by almost 50% to Mm -hmm. 1.8 children. Per woman. That's an extraordinary change in less than in a human generation. It didn't occur because of a crisis or a famine, and it didn't occur because of some government edict. It occurred because of a constellation of what I see as very positive factors. Women began to go to college as a gender in great numbers in, during that period in the United States. We had the women's movement more broadly. We had the advent of the birth control pill. We had uh, changes in law, uh, which enabled couples and individuals to have access to contraception and abortion as well, and a whole lot of other things that occurred all at the same time. So this wasn't a top-down issue or approach. This was bottom-up. And so the lower birth rates are a consequence of people making free and, and thoughtful choices of their own. And so the question is, now that people have made those choices, what are the impacts of them, and and how can we address that? At the same time this was going on, we've certainly uh, seen a rise in our standard of living as it's defined by income over the last several generations. It's certainly been up and down, but over the long run it's gone up, and a rise in consumption. So, you know, it's a little difficult to compare... Uh, you know, I don't want to get into sports, but it's a little like trying to compare a, a sports figure from 80 years ago to one today. Every generation faces its own set of challenges. And I, I don't think we're going to turn the clock back to a time when we didn't have uh, some of what Mark Twain liked to call the modern inconveniences. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with the here and now and look at the fact that these were free choices that people made, and we just have to look at how uh, they're playing out. Mm-hmm. 
One of the other economic concerns that we hear from economists when we're discussing population rates and growth is how will we pay for healthcare costs in the United States if the ratio of young workers to the elderly declines? Talk to us about how your book's contributors um, address this concern, John. I think there are two key elements that spring to mind. The first is when you look at the period of time in any per- the average person's life, the typical person's life, when they endure very high health costs. And of course, we're all different and we all face different life circumstances, but generally it's the last 12 to 18 months of life. Uh, people's health decline, their health declines, they, they run into all sorts of problems, and we see very heavy expenses at the end of life. That raises lots of questions, but uh, and I'm not quite sure how to put this more gently than this, but the mortality rate is still holding at 100%. That's going to happen <laughs> to all of us, whether it happens at one age or another. Uh, so most people who are older are actually pretty healthy. They might have a sore knee or maybe need to take a blood pressure medication, but generally speaking, they're in pretty good health. So that's one part of the issue. The other is... Uh, so much, so many of the health care costs and challenges we have in the United States are lifestyle-related. Uh, poor eating habits, sometimes uh, because people don't have access to good nutrition, and sometimes just from bad habits. Uh, lack of exercise, uh, whether it's kids who don't get out and play every day or whether it's grown-ups who don't get out for a walk every day. Uh, those are issues that, that we can take on and deal with uh, recognizing, frankly, that most of us would like to live as long a healthy life as we can. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that uh, your book discusses is this notion of people remaining in the workforce longer. Um, and, you know, this is a very difficult you know, issue to discuss, not to offend, uh, not to, you know, create too much uh, intergenerational or intragenerational conflict, but how might that impact the earning capacity of younger generations, both in the short term and throughout this career? I mean, could this impact the macroeconomic performance of the United States as well as the economic status of individual Americans? The universe, uh, from what little I know of it, is a closed system. The workplace is not. When you have people who can contribute skills and experiences and talents, it actually expands opportunities. It doesn't contract them. It it makes for more opportunities. Economists have studied this, and they found that when older workers stay on the job, it doesn't cause younger workers uh, not to have employment opportunities because young people and older people have different sets of skills. Uh, As the head of Deutsche Bank once said, Old people run faster, but young people know the shortcuts. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you an interesting example of, of, uh, of how this plays out. In Germany, they found at BMW that older workers on the assembly lines were not as productive as younger workers. But then they looked at why, and as a consequence, they installed inexpensive magnifying equipment. They put in some wood floors instead of hard concrete floors. All of a sudden, the productivity of the older workers became the same as the younger workers. So we all benefit when you have diverse experiences, and we can 
we can do different things well. And frankly, when somebody is uh, retired and doesn't have an opportunity to do the things they want to do, uh, that isn't good for them, and that's not good for the society as well. It costs all of us. I love your optimism. You have, you know, you're the the glass half full guy, John, and I appreciate that. You know, birth rates aren't the only factor in a nation's population equation. Immigration plays a role as well. And of course, that's center stage this year in the elections. Um, Talk to us about how the challenges and opportunities inherent um, in immigration increases um, in the population when we're talking about immigration. What are some of those both challenges and opportunities as the population fluxes due to immigration? If, if I had my way, and it doesn't appear that I will, <laughs> I would uh, try to get us to start talking about it uh, in terms of the biological phenomenon, which is migration. Uh, birds do it. Uh, all sorts of creatures do it. And, and migration, uh, I think, helps us understand the phenomenon more clearly. Because people are on the move all the time in, in all sorts of different directions. Uh, let's talk head-on about uh, that, that wall that a certain presidential candidate who shall remain unnamed for the moment uh, <laughs> seems to want to build. Uh, it comes as a surprise to many people that over the last five years, there have been more people who were born in Mexico who have been returning from the United States to Mexico than coming here. Uh, I, I can't quite figure out what those people would do if there was a wall, if they want to go back to where they originally lived. It seems kind of strange. Uh, we have to look at this, and if you look at the data over the last few years, what you discover from the numbers, and frankly, it's very hard to convince people of this, uh, that the era of massive migration, and there was an era, uh, seems to be over at this point. Uh, people are fighting the last war here. And, and it's good to look at some of the reasons why it ended, because that helps us understand how to deal with this phenomenon more broadly on the world stage. Well, and, you know, there is another component to this um, that even the United States military is prepping for, and that is climate refugees. Um, and as climate changes and certain parts of the world become less hospitable for human life, that there may be this migration, as you as you call it, um, as a result of climate change. And it is something that every nation, um, especially a nation like ours with ample resources, will need to consider. You know, our infrastructure is old in many places, and it's set up to serve a certain number of people. And if that number of people is going to continually rise, there are public investments that are going to need to happen in order to serve and provide water and energy and, you know, all of the things, the, the services um, that we expect in our communities. And so, you know, based on birth rates, also based on immigration, migration, however you term it, our public policymakers really need to be thinking about, you know, what we'll need to do in order to ready our communities to provide the goods and services that 
our population uh, depends upon, that our businesses depend upon in order to thrive and to live well. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to have a lot more with John, and we'll be talking more about his book, The Good Crisis, How Population Stabilization Can Foster a Healthy U.S. Economy. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad that you joined us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up on our topic and our uh, guest du jour. Um, Our guest today is John Seeger. He is the president and CEO of Population Connection, which is the nation's largest grassroots population organization. And he's got a brand new book out that's called The Good Crisis, How Population Stabilization Can Foster a Healthy U.S. Economy. Chapter four of your book, John, discusses some of the trends amongst millennials that are both environmentally and socially encouraging. And I'd love for you to talk to us about some of those trends. These are, in many ways, very heartening trends. Uh, Young people are moving back, young adults are moving back into cities and helping to make them vibrant, thriving places, not that some of them haven't been, certainly. Uh, We're seeing uh, less interest in driving cars and more interest in uh, other forms of uh, transit, whether it's ride-sharing or bicycling or old-fashioned put one foot in front of the other and see where Mm -hmm. it takes you, walking. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we're seeing people who 
recognize and appreciate the, the wonderful uh, diversity and, and, and cultural opportunities and employment opportunities that cities bring. And cities are very much part of the solution here. You can make a pretty good case that the most sustainable lifestyle in America today is an apartment dweller on the island of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Living in a small unit, public open space, probably doesn't have a car, uh, relatively low energy consumption for a variety of reasons, and of course the food has to come from somewhere and the waste has to go somewhere. But from a standpoint of sustainability, living in, in more compact communities can have a dramatic impact. The, the two biggest decisions uh, people make in their lives that have an impact on, on our environment are the decisions of, of whether and how many children to have and, and where people are going to choose to live. And that's pretty much uh, the name of the game when it comes to our impact on, on the, the world around us. Mm-hmm. I loved uh, chapters six and seven because they touched on a topic near and dear to my heart, which is education. And these two chapters give examples of schools that are doing a great job of ensuring their students go out into the workforce with the skills they need to prosper. Help our listeners understand the connection between excellent education, population rates, and then environmental benefits of those two components. Well, I'd like to, to touch on two aspects of this. Uh, I think the, the greatest area of concern and opportunity for American education are the 15 million children today who are trapped in poverty. Uh, I know there's enormous gnashing of teeth over the state of American elementary and secondary education, and I hate to be the, the only one out of tune here, but most people end up getting a pretty darn good education, uh, truth be known. But we have 15 million children in America who are being left behind from day one, and most of them never have a chance to catch up. The first thing I would do, before I get to the second point, is to suggest maybe we stop thinking of them as children trapped in poverty. Think of them as future doctors, future entrepreneurs, future teachers, future engineers, future nurses. And, and start thinking about how we can invest in improving their opportunities because we'll all benefit from it. The, the second point I, I'd like to make about education is uh, a little closer to home for us as an organization, and there's certainly many other aspects. Uh, we, a uh, small plug for Population Connection, we are the best and, as far as I know, only nationwide provider of population education. About 3 million children a year in the United States have the opportunity through a lot of hands-on activities, mostly in public schools, to really understand the connection between population growth, population challenges, and the world around them, and what they can do about it. And I think it's so important for young people to be engaged as early as possible in the concept of civic behavior. Because we're not just individuals, we're part of a community, and we try very hard through a network of about 50,000 teachers who use our materials to get students to, to think about these things and to act in ways that hopefully are, are useful to everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and in talking with guests that have previously appeared on Go Green Radio about this issue, you know, I share my own story. No one was talking about the impact of population 
rates on the environment. When I was in my, you know, teen years and early 20s, I mean, the the mantra was, if you can't feed a baby, don't have a baby. That was the best guidance that we had. Only have the number of kids you can provide for. But that didn't take into account, as you mentioned, the communal impact of, you know, population and our procreation choices. And so, um, you know, a lot of times you hear these discussions going on amongst people who are no longer um, in the peak of their childbearing years. And so, so engaging young people in this um, discussion is absolutely vital. Now, as Chapter 7 rightly asserts, higher productivity and wages often go hand in hand with higher levels of education. Um, however, education happens at the local level. And the children that are educated in the local area, as you say, may not stay in that same area and help the local economy prosper. If they move into the city, you know, their economic contributions are lost to the local community that invested in their education. Um, So talk to us about how rural and suburban communities can continue to fund educational excellence when they're essentially exporting their economic assets to urban areas. There's an enormous flaw in the way we we fund education elementary and secondary education in the United States, and I'm not, I'm not really equipped personally to solve it. I'm kind of busy with, with what I'm working on. But in most places, the property tax is the base for most or much of the money to fund elementary and secondary education. And that's just a terrible system to use. Uh, certainly states, uh, through income taxes and other taxes, contribute a significant share. And the federal government comes in with a, a smaller slice as well. But it's, it's this terribly flawed tax system that's really penalizing systems out there. And, and I'm not quite sure. Uh, I know, I think we could, it's not hard to figure out what to do. It's harder to figure out how to do it. Uh, that's really, I think, you know, one of the keys here. All of that said, you'd have to look far and wide to find a family that doesn't want the best for its children and a community that doesn't want the best for its children. Uh, you know, sure, kids grow up and they move away, but we're, we're all one society here. And although sometimes when you read the election headlines, you wouldn't know it, uh, we need to realize that, that as a nation, really as a world, but as a nation, we're all in it together. And it benefits all of us when people excel and when they're able to do what they want with their lives, where they want to do it. Uh, I think sometimes we, we, uh, we you know, we, it's hard sometimes to match the solutions with the problems, and I'll leave it at that. That's very true, and I think that is a huge problem. I see it in areas where you may have you know, double digits and maybe uh, as high as 25 to 30% of the population living in public housing. And when there just isn't property tax, I mean, we have a lot of communities in America where the occupancy rate for the existing housing may be below 40%, um, you know, in, in privately held uh, dwellings because of loss of you know, employers and, you know, loss of job opportunities. There's been migration out of those areas. But the people that are still there still have to provide for 
the education of their children. Of course, the state always steps in and there's, you know, some kind of solution. But um, it is a very tough funding cycle and budgetary issue, um, you know, for a lot of communities in this nation. And I'd really like to, to bear down on that as a community of, of people concerned with education in this country. But let's go back to your book, John. You know, Chapter 8 introduces a concept called population health management. Talk to us about what this entails and how it might alleviate some of the anxiety and hand-wringing amongst, you know, economists who are uh, looking for population growth to solve some of our problems. Well, I suspect if you ask the average person uh, how to complete the following sentence, I visit the doctor when I'm sick. That's sort of the, the last word often in that sentence. Yep. I, I think uh, that certainly if you're sick, by all means, please visit the doctor. Uh, we, you know, I sometimes tell our staff we have a sick leave policy. If you're sick, please leave. Uh, come back <laughs> when you're better and, and don't, don't share it with the rest of us. Uh, so more seriously, however, I think that we need to shift kind of the health model away from the obvious and necessary part of providing uh, for people when, when they're ill and, and realize that, that promoting healthy lifestyles and healthy behavior isn't just good in some sort of intrinsic or, or sort of feel-good sense, if you will. It, it also dramatically improves the productivity of societies. It dramatically improves general well-being, and it improves the economy. And, and focusing on wellness across the board it is very important. And, and, and so I think that it's, that's a big part of the challenge in terms of health management. Uh, our health costs aren't so high because of, of, uh, of disease that is sort of there and unavoidable. It's because of uh, unfortunate or, or maybe uninformed choices that, frankly, and I'm not going to put myself above it, most of us make from time to time. Uh, so maybe we need a whole new category of doctors who only work on, on helping keep us healthy rather than treating us when we're sick. Mm-hmm. Well, and were we to, to lower that um, lifestyle-induced portion of our health care costs, um, you know, we really could alleviate a big economic burden, which, of course, is what's driving economists to say we need, you know, more and younger people in the workforce in order to pay for an aging population. And so um, I think we're starting to see that in the healthcare industry. I mean, even some of the big um, organizations that advertise, you know, healthcare organizations that advertise on cable news channels, they're talking about preventative health um, a lot more. Chapter 12 of the book discusses something that I think is really important, and that's engaging young people in order to prevent teen pregnancy. Um, and, and the book makes an interesting point that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this quote, and then actually we'll take a quick commercial break and I'll have you respond. But here's the quote. It says, it's no longer good enough for a teacher to stand in front of a group of young people and tell them to be abstinent or teach them about birth control or the dangers of sexually transmitted diseases or the limited opportunities in life they can expect as teenage parents. They've learned that teenagers are at their best and most receptive to positive ideas when they are engaged, involved, and part of the learning process. When we come back from our quick commercial break, 
break, I'm going to have you talk to us about some of the effective ways of helping teens engage in this issue of population growth. So don't go away, folks. We've got much more right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in with us today. In case you've just joined us, our guest today is John Seeger, and he's got a brand new book out called The Good Crisis, How Population Stabilization Can Foster a Healthy U.S. Economy. And during the break, John was just mentioning to me that it's possible to get his book for free. John, give us some details on that. Uh, anyone who'd like a free digital download of The Good Crisis can go to www, as the saying goes, dot thegoodcrisis.org, and they're welcome to have a free digital copy. Uh, if they want a paper copy, they're going to have to pay for it, but the digital ones are free for one and all, uh, thegoodcrisis.org. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. And now, right before the break, we were talking about getting teenagers involved, not just having them sit through a lesson about um, procreation and abstinence and sexually transmitted diseases, but actually getting them engaged in trying to to help uh, prevent unplanned pregnancies as a teenager and getting them engaged in the issue of population. Talk to us about some effective ways of doing that. Uh, first, a, a general uh, comment from uh, some great research done by the people at the Guttmacher Institute. Uh, they uh, went out and talked to teenagers and young adults who, who had had different life experiences, and they found a very high correlation among young girls who'd gotten pregnant as teens uh, who said the following, things just seem to happen to me in life. 
Now, pregnancy can happen in, under all kinds of circumstances, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, if a young girl uh, is uh, engaged in school and activities and thinking about what she wants to do in college, uh, the likelihood of her getting pregnant is much lower. Uh, so, you know, that's a very good point here. The other thing I, I really want to mention is this is an extraordinary success story in recent decades. Since 1991, or 1990 rather, the teen birth rate in the United States has gone down 61%. We know wow. what works. We know that when you talk frankly and openly, not at teenagers, but with them, and, and get them to uh, think about their own lives and what they want to do with their lives, and make sure that they have access to contraception uh, for those who are going to be sexually active, which most of us are eventually. Uh, we know what works, and we also know what doesn't work. We know that just lecturing them doesn't work, and we know that, that abstinence-only programs don't work. Uh, you know, if they did, we could have a debate about the relative merits of them, but they don't, so that debate is really over. Uh, we, we know what's working, we just have to do more of it. Well, and I like the idea of engaging teenagers in a sense of activism um, and, and empowering them to actually be leaders within their community. Um, those are important skills that can lead them not just to take control of their own lives, but um, you know, to, to help their communities become more sustainable in a great variety of ways. Um, they have fresh ideas and a lot of energy, and channeling that and empowering them is a good thing. Um, you know, switching gears just a little bit, there are several chapters in the book that address the environmental impact of more sustainable business practices, um, reduced consumption, and the increase in renewable energy. Does the advance of these trends diminish the sense of urgency to control population rates? Not when you've had the kind of summer we're having. When you look at, <laughs> at, at uh, the heat wave that, uh, that, that most places around the country have experienced, uh, clearly we're in the middle of some extraordinary phenomenon. Uh, and no one can predict exactly how it's going to play out or how fast. But this is really an all-hands-on-deck time for us. Uh, it's not an either-or, it's both and. It's working on renewables, it's, it's looking at new ways to conserve, and it's trying to make sure and encourage people and remove the barriers so everyone is capable of making thoughtful, informed decisions about when, whether, and how many children to have. We never talk about a specific number because that, frankly, is a private and personal matter. The evidence overwhelmingly suggests when people make thoughtful decisions and when they don't face barriers to contraception, overwhelmingly they choose smaller families. And for the relatively few people who don't, well, that's fine too. Frankly, some of our supporters get irked when I say that. But it is. Uh, you can't really value diversity and then get annoyed when people don't do exactly what you want them to do. That's right. That's right. And, you know, on that note, what role does public policy play in this intensely private issue of procreation? I mean, to what extent can the government um, influence in an appropriate way 
issues like population and procreation? Uh, you do it by removing barriers. And ignorance is a huge barrier. Uh, and there are all kinds of other barriers uh, that are in the way. Uh, it can be economic barriers, uh, whether it's the cost of, of contraception can be a factor uh, in some circumstances. More commonly, uh, for example, is the following. The overwhelming majority of women in the United States who have an unplanned birth give one of two answers as to why. I didn't think I was going to have sex, and I didn't think I could get pregnant. Those are the two top reasons, and that's the overwhelming majority. The great new development, or relatively new development, is what's called LARC, Long-Acting Reversible Contraception, IUDs, Implants, Injectables, uh, which, have, which are extraordinarily effective. Uh, let me give you one statistic. Uh, in theory, if a 1,000 women use birth control pills for a year, three of them will get pregnant. In practice, 90 will because hmm. the pills work better in theory than in practice. We're all human. We forget. We make mistakes. And in one study, uh, women uh, failed to take birth control pills on schedule an average of 4.7 times per month. With these other methods, these long-acting reversible methods, you take that away, and, and the failure rates are microscopic. And it, so it enables women and couples to, to be able to make their own decisions and make their own choices without, without fear of, of an unplanned pregnancy. Mm-hmm. In the couple of minutes that we have left, I want to address this important issue because this is where our listeners can engage. We know that public policymakers are very reliant upon economists because public policymakers are measured in terms like the number of jobs created, the unemployment rates, and things like that when they're in office. And these are things that voters consider also, I mean, when they go to the polls. And these are also things that economists say are fueled by economic growth spurred by population growth. What will it take to shift that paradigm, not just for economists and public policymakers, but for everyday voters who are the ones who hire and fire the public policymakers? I would encourage people to think about what makes their family strong and then try to apply that more broadly. Does your family and the people you love and care about, are they better off when they're better educated? Are they better off when, they ha- when they're more healthy? Are they better off when people who want to get up in the morning and go to work have an opportunity to go to a job that, that provides them with financial and, and other rewards? Uh, all of those things are obvious when you think about them in the context of a family. Why wouldn't they be true for a society as well? It, it, you know, that's the way to think about it, is, is to think about it in pretty much practical, personal, common-sense terms. And, and, you know, if something doesn't ring true that way, then I'd be fairly skeptical about the person who's telling it to you. Well, and I think, you know, for a lot of people, what you said is exactly right, but um, they view these sorts of, you know, measurements of happiness um, through the lens that they've been given, which is... You know, we need a certain amount of people in the workforce. 
um, in order to create these job opportunities, in order to, you know, advance economic growth to the extent that our nation can continue to provide jobs. And so my hope is, is that, you know, we will have a, a crop of economists who can help us you know, achieve that, give us good advice, but do it in a way that's much more sustainable than the surge that we've seen, you know, in in population that may or may not be sustainable given, uh, you know, our natural resources and the state of our infrastructure. On that, I'm afraid we have to, we have to say goodbye to John. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your new book. Folks, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.